You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Tom's going to come and speak to us now. Um, but before he dives into the passage, Casey's going to come up and read it for us. Um, so you can follow what he's reading. The words will be on the screen. So let's give a round of applause for Casey. Hi, everyone. Um, this one's a long one, so brace yourselves. So I'll be reading from Luke chapter 2, um, from verse 21 all the way to 52. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, it was named Jesus, the name given by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering, as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. At that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him, and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord, as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. It is a light to reveal God to the nations, and it is the glory of your people, Israel. Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many to fall in Israel and many others to rise. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they had been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshipping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. When Jesus' parents had fulfilled all the requirements of the law of the Lord, they returned home to Nazareth in Galilee. There, the child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebrations was over, they started home to Nazareth. But Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first. 
because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to him, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in our heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Amen. 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 You can applaud the reading of the word of the Lord. That's fine. <laughs> no, some of you want to. That's great. Shall we pray before we dive into this passage together? Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that what I'm holding in my hand is uh, a life-changing book because it's your words breathed out to us. And we pray that today as we, as we dig into your word that you would come and change our hearts, that you would come and change our minds on some things and that you would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Let me wish you a good afternoon. My name's Tom and I'm one of the elders here at Hope Church. And just before Christmas, we started a series of messages in the book of Luke, which is one of the biographies of Jesus' life that we find in the New Testament, talking about all that he did, all that he said, his life, his death, his resurrection. And we learned that this was a book written by a doctor called Luke, who had been commissioned by a guy called Theophilus, who was probably a Roman governor of some description. He's described as most excellent Theophilus. And it seems that Theophilus wanted to know what on earth was going on with this Jesus movement. He asked Luke, who somehow he knew, he said, Luke, I'm paying you and I want you to go and find out what's happening. And so Luke, who was an associate of the Apostle Paul, already a believer in Jesus, he goes to Jerusalem and to Israel and he takes eyewitness accounts of uh, what has been going on. There was at least two years we know that he was in Israel because the Apostle Paul was imprisoned there. And so Luke had the choice of do I go back to practicing medicine, which he may have done a bit of, but he predominantly spent his time going around asking people for their eyewitness accounts of Jesus. And he spent a lot of time with Mary, the mother of Jesus, whose accounts we've just heard read out. And we've seen in these uh, stories that we've read out today, two instances of Jesus in his early life entering the temple in Jerusalem. Now, it had been prophesied hundreds of years before that moment that the Lord, and there would, be a, there would be a time when the Lord himself would enter the temple in Jerusalem. And people were expecting that to happen. I don't think any of them could have foreseen that it would have been looking like a teenage mum carrying in a defenseless baby to be met by two old age pensioners in the temple. It's completely different to what they had expected. But this is a significant passage for us as we're going to see uh, together in just a moment. What we're going to do is going to work through this, or this passage we've just heard read out, pull out some things that will be helpful for us, and then we're going to land by, by focusing on Jesus' humanity and why that's important for us. So we see uh, initially Jesus, uh, after eight days, having we've just had the Christmas story. He's been born in the, in the, the, the stable amongst the animals, it seems. Uh, and eight days later, when Jesus was circumcised, 
his, his parents, are, he's get given the name Jesus, uh, which the angel had prophesied that he would have. This name means saviour. His name literally means saviour. And uh, at school, as the register was read out, it would be literally saviour. Yes, miss, I'm here. That's, that's what his name means. And he's circumcised, just like all the other Jewish boys of the time, just like all of the other Jewish boys even now, circumcised on the eighth day, that he would be a normal boy in that regard for uh, his culture. And it meant that he would come under the law of Moses that we read about in the Old Testament, the law given to the people of Israel. This is how they were to live. This is how they were to uh, structure their society. He was going to be coming under the law. And that's important for us to understand because in Galatians, we see uh, the Apostle Paul saying that Jesus came and lived under the law to fulfill the law for us, where we could not fulfill it, where we fell short, where we fall short every single day of God's standards, Jesus never failed. Jesus never fell short of God's standards. The standards we see of do not murder, maybe we may not have murdered someone, but we've had anger in our hearts, which Jesus says is like murder. It may not be that we've committed adultery, but we've had lust in our hearts for uh, people that are not our spouse, so we've committed adultery in our hearts where we may, may or may not have stolen, but we've had jealousy and we've wanted the things that other people have. It's like we've stolen in our hearts. So we've fallen short in many, many ways. And we see that right from birth, Jesus is obedient to the law. He's obedient to the law. He came to fulfill the law for those who could not fulfill it, which is everyone else. And so Jesus comes as a normal boy in that regard, circumcised on the eighth day. And then, again, as per the custom, a few weeks later, there comes the time for uh, Mary and Joseph to bring an offering to the temple. And we see that they bring the offering of two pigeons. And that might seem kind of like matter of fact to us. Okay, they brought some pigeons along. Well, there was a law that stated that for your firstborn child, you're to bring a lamb to the temple. You just bring a lamb as an offering. And yet there was a, a caveat put in the law that said if you could not afford it, you could bring two pigeons. And so we see that Mary and Joseph were not wealthy people. They were not rich in their culture standards. They had to bring pigeons because they couldn't afford a lamb, which shows us proof that if we needed it, that godliness does not lead to financial prosperity. It doesn't necessarily lead to us having loads and loads of riches. That Jesus grew up in a poor family, that he understands the plight of those who know need and know that they don't have everything on a plate. Jesus understands. And so they come into the temple for this offering, and they meet this guy, Simeon. And religion's at like a low ebb in Israel at this time. I guess they're probably fed up of being ruled by the Romans. They're fed up of you know, having these foreign occupiers in their country. They haven't heard from God for hundreds of years through the prophets. It's been quite a, a, a low time, really, for the people of Israel. But there's still devoted people, devout followers of God in the nation. And Simeon is one of them. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's led by the Holy Spirit. He's a righteous man. And it may seem sometimes like religion's at a low ebb in this nation or in other nations of the world. But we know that there is always people who will, who will buck that trend. There will always be people who stand firm, despite the flow going one way, who will stand firm and walk for God. And in all parts of the world, in many, many uh, nations, in all of the continents of the world, the kingdom of God is growing, it's expanding. No matter what it might look like in our nation or in other nations that we might come from, the kingdom of God is advancing. And so Simeon sees Jesus and he's been promised by God that he would not die until he sees the Messiah. 
that he would not pass away until he sees the Messiah. And he sees Jesus and he bursts into song and says, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. He sees Jesus and the first thing he prays is, God, I can die now. I've seen him. He had a bucket list of one thing and it was to see the Messiah. And now he's seen it and he's saying, God, I can go in peace now. Listen, it's only faith in Jesus that can cause someone to look death in the face and have peace. Because no one wants to die. We, we, we want to go on living healthily forever. And yet when death comes our way, are we going to face it with peace in our hearts or fear? And Simeon shows us that when we see Jesus for who he is, we can look death in the face and have peace in our hearts and say, God, I'm ready. I'm ready to come. I'm ready to come home. Simeon has seen salvation, he says. It's not a what, but a who. It's not a what do I have to do? It's a who. Who do I put my trust in? He sees Jesus and he says, I've seen the salvation of the Lord. I've seen him. I don't need to fear death. And he goes on to declare of this child that he's to be the glory of Israel. The glory of Israel. Israel had a lot to glory in. They were God's chosen people. They were God's special people in his land that he had given them. They had Abraham. They had Moses. They had King David. They had all these heroes of the faith. And yet, Simeon says, this is the glory of Israel. This is the reason why Israel has to boast and celebrate, because Jesus was born from Israel. Jesus comes from this people. He's the true glory of Israel. He's the one to get excited about, not the land. Not the land, but Jesus is the one to get excited about. He says that he's the glory of Israel. And he says and he's the light of the nations. He's a light of the nations. There's a, there's a light now gone out to the nations. An offer of salvation, an offer of peace with God. And this child was to be that offer. This child was to be the offer to the nations of glorious light, of peace with God. And Simeon's saying, this is an offer going out to all the nations. And yet, as he goes on to say, this man, this child that would grow into a man, he's going to divide opinion. Some will rise because of him, some will fall because of him. The self-righteous and proud, the ones that think they've got it sewn up, he will be a stumbling block to them because it's through him that we come to realize we need saving, that we haven't got it all together, that we need a savior. So some would fall because of him and some would rise up as they realize, I need him. He's salvation and I need him. This light's going out to the nations and there's a call for a response. Are we going to celebrate him? Are we going to worship him? Are we going to treasure him for who he is? What's our response? And Simeon goes on to prophesy to Mary that this, a sword will pierce your soul. What's he talking about there? Well, he's talking about the cross where it wasn't Mary that got pierced with the sword, but her son who got pierced with the sword. And it would be like her soul was pierced as that, at that moment. As she watched on, as she saw her son at the age of about 33 on that cross being executed, it would be like a sword piercing her soul. There was sorrow coming amongst all the joy that Simeon was experiencing, amongst the joy of finally seeing the Messiah, amongst the joy of saying, this is the light to the nation, he's the glory of Israel. There was the shadow of the cross already beginning to form. That This boy would come and... The salvation that he would bring to the world will come at an almighty cost to him. And as they're walking and talking with Simeon, this lady Anna comes on the scene. She's, I love the Bible, it doesn't hold back. It says, she's really old. She's really old. And she sees them and she immediately, I guess she hears some of what Simeon's saying. She says, this is the one. 
And she, having spent her life dedicated to God, praying for this Messiah to come, asking God, send your Messiah, she's now seen him and she goes into the streets. Having been in the temple, having not left the temple for years, now she's saying, now I'm going. Now I'm going to go and tell everyone that I can that this Messiah has arrived. She's a fantastic evangelist. She's a godly woman, a model for us to follow. So we see at the outset of this story, in some ways, Jesus is a very ordinary boy. In some ways, he's just like all of the other boys of his age, circumcised on the eighth day, the offering in the temple, seems kind of normal, but now we're starting to see this is no ordinary child. This is no ordinary baby. People are getting very excited at the sight of him. And we see that Jesus then grew up. He grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom, and God's favor was on him. It's really important that we, we take this verse and don't just run ahead of it. This verse shows us that Jesus grew up. He had to grow up. I mean, sometimes with, with our children, children in our lives, whether our own or others, they can sometimes have this view. We can sometimes have this view of Jesus as a baby in a manger and Jesus as a man of about 30 years old, healing people, teaching great wisdom, and then dying on a cross a few years later. We can kind of have those two images in our mind, but we don't really consider the fact that Jesus was once a child, that Jesus had to grow up, that every year his parents would have, you know, scored on the door his height, and against his brothers and sisters, of which he had several, they would have been marking on the door, oh, look, he's grown another couple of inches. Jesus grew up, and he knew what it was like to be in family with annoying siblings, we believe he had at least six brothers and sisters, we find from the scriptures. And he would have known what it was like to have hormones. He would have known what it was like to just have had friends annoy him and misunderstand him and wind him up. He knows what it's like for us. And it's helpful that our children are taught that, that Jesus knows what it's like. We watched um, a nativity thing on, at Christmas time called The Star. It's this kind of animation about, um, it's kind of crazy, really. There's talking donkeys and stuff in it and, um, and talking lambs and they get married, I think. I don't know. Anyway, it's a bit weird. And yet my children were like, well, at the end where Jesus is born, my son said, well, Jesus can speak as a baby, Dad. I was like, no, he couldn't. But he did know everything. No, he didn't. And it, just getting their heads around the, hang on a minute, he had to grow up. He had to grow up. It's helpful that we help people to see. Jesus knows what it's like. And for our children, he knows what it's like. As for our teenagers, he knows what it's like. He's a friend who knows. He's a friend who can understand. He really, he really can relate. And we see every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Every year, they honored God in this way. They were a God-centered family. They were a family that put God first. They were a family that, that the children would have had no doubt God is the priority in this family. And every year traveled to Jerusalem, a long journey where there would have been having to camp every night. That is stressful with children. I tell you, it's camping with children is wonderful, it's fun, but it's also quite stressful. I've got a friend of mine who leads our church elsewhere, and he said for marriage preparation, they get the prospective married couple to put up a tent in the rain together to see how stressful it is. And then you add children into the mix, it's even more stressful. They would have had to travel. It was costly to them. Joseph would have had to take time off work as a carpenter. He would have lost out on money in order for them to go and honor God at the Passover festival. 
They had to take seven children. You get that? Take seven children over many, many miles of really difficult terrain having to go to the temple every year because they wanted to put God first in their family. There was no doubt for Jesus and his siblings that Mary and Joseph, they worshipped God. They were all about him. They weren't perfect. They weren't perfect, but they honoured God. And so we need to, as parents, lead our families in that way. We need to lead our parents in the way of we're putting God first. He's not one of many competing priorities in our family life. He's number one. He's who we treasure, and sometimes it's costly. Sometimes it means other things get pushed out of the way because we are putting God first. And Joseph, we don't hear about him ever again after this passage. This is the last bit we hear about Joseph. So that means that at some point between this time when Jesus was 12 and the next chapter when Jesus is 30, Joseph dies and leaves behind Mary and the kids. But his legacy is one of, I led my family in the ways of God. I didn't just leave it to Mary. I didn't leave it to her to be the spiritual one, and I just went along with her. No, I led my family in the ways of God. Together, they were a team saying, we're going God's way as a family. They would have been in no doubt. I was praying a couple of weeks ago as I was walking. I just said, God, I want my children to be in no doubt that you are number one priority in my life. I don't want them to just see me get excited about you on Sundays. I don't want to see just them to see me get excited about you at prayer meetings. I want, I want them to know that you are number one in our lives. And I, I tell you, I, I grew up in a family where from the age of five, my parents became Christians when I was that old. And from that age, they were devoted to God. They weren't perfect, made mistakes, but I saw them make decisions that were based on their faith in God. Big decisions about money, big decisions about what we do with our holidays, all this kind of stuff, putting God at the center. And when news came that my mum had cancer, it was, we're going to God with this. Or when my dad got laid off, having worked in the same factory for 25 years, the factory shuts down, and it's like, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to trust God. And we're going to give of our money, and we're going to keep trusting him. Listen, you lead your family well, your children will have no doubt God is real and that he's priority. And eventually they'll come to treasure him for themselves. I believe that. So, this was Joseph's legacy to his family. He led his family in the ways of God. And Jesus was seemingly, at the age of 12, quite a trustworthy kid. That they felt that they didn't need to have him, like, under, under lock and key with them all of the time. They were, as they were traveling back from Jerusalem, they assumed he's with the traveling party. They assumed he's with family and friends. There would have been hundreds of them traveling together across this terrain. And they just assumed Jesus was at the back of the group. And they get traveling for a day and a bit and they come to the evening and they're about to set up camp and Joseph says to Mary uh have you seen Jesus anywhere no I no I haven't actually uh let's just go and have a little look around looking around the camp they cannot find him anywhere and suddenly panic sets in they have got one job to do which is to care for the son of God and they've lost him they can't find him anywhere panic is setting in I don't think they would have slept that night I think they go straight to Jerusalem they go into Rambo mode, okay? So I was in London last year, and uh, with my family, we went to the Science Museum, and we went to the Wonder Lab, which is incredible, and my children loved it. Clearly didn't want to go home, because we started to leave, and we thought we had our three children in tow. We've only got three. This is pretty bad that we lost one. And so we, we started to walk uh, out of the, the, the Wonder Lab, went to the lift, pressing the lift, and I turned around and said, where's Keris? 
She's disappeared. And I suddenly, I don't know what happened to me, but I suddenly became Rambo. It was like I had this kind of bandana around my head and a Kalashnikov in my arms. And I suddenly started walking through the corridors and running through the corridors. People were flying out of the way everywhere. And I, was, I didn't care who I injured on the process. I was going to go and find my daughter. And suddenly, it was probably only about four minutes that we lost her for, but it felt like four days. And I suddenly found her and I started crying and she started crying. And then for the rest of the holiday, we dressed them in very bright clothes and they were not allowed to let go of our hands. <laughs> as we were walking through London. But I, I just went into sort of panic mode. I've got to find my daughter. This is what Joseph and Mary go into. They go into full-on panic mode. They become Rambo. They're on the way to Jerusalem looking for Jesus. And they get to the temple, and they finally find him. And Jesus is really as chilled out as it comes. And they say, why, why were you panicking? Why were you panicking? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? And for the first time, perhaps, in their life, Mary's starting to realize this isn't going to be a normal mother-son relationship. This is going to be a bit different. And she's starting to realize, I'm going to have to accommodate Jesus. When we grasp Jesus for who he is as the Son of God, we realize we have to accommodate Jesus. It's not the other way around. He displaces things in our lives. And when we really understand him for who he is, things change. Things have to change. Habits change. Thoughts change. Hearts change. Because he's the son of God. So Mary's suddenly realizing this. She'll come to realize it again a few years later where at the wedding in Cana, the run out of wine, and Mary's like, I know someone who can come and fix it. She tries to force the issue, and Jesus says, Mom, leave it. Leave it, Mom. I'll deal with this. She's starting to realize this is extraordinary, this child. But she already knew that. But he's going to be, he's, I'm going to have to adjust for him, not him for me. And yet, listen to this. He says, didn't you know I'd be in my father's house? They didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Wow. <laughs> Jesus, along with his father, before the world began, designed Mary and Joseph. They designed Mary and Joseph. <laughs> Knew what they'd look like, what they'd be like, what they'd do. And now Jesus is willingly submitting to them. He is far superior to them. And he's submitting to them. It's quite a helpful thing to show our children, isn't it? <laughs> that even Jesus would obey his mum and dad. Only a holy God does this. Sometimes we think of holiness as, well, God's perfect, we're not. You know, it's bad news kind of thing. Well, the holiness of God is good news because he's not like us. He's totally not like us. He does things like that. He does things like willingly submitting to his mum and dad. Who weren't, I mean, Joseph wasn't even his real father. Submits to him. So why does Luke tell this story? Why? He probably had loads of material he could have put into this. I think Mary probably shared a lot about Jesus as a child, as a teenager, why did he choose this story? Why do we have Jesus at eight weeks old, suddenly Jesus at 12 years old, and in the next chapter, Jesus at 30 years old? What is, why has Luke bothered to record this random story? Well, I think the clue is in this. Either side of this story about Jesus getting lost, or rather Mary and Joseph losing him, there's two verses which are very similar. Verse 40 says, There the child grew up healthy and strong, he was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. And then verse 52, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature 
and in favor with God and all the people. Luke is showing us that Jesus had to grow. Luke is showing us Jesus' humanity. He's showing us that Jesus is fully human. That Jesus, whilst fully divine, is fully man. That's what he's at pains to show us, that Jesus needed to grow. Now, God doesn't need to grow, does he? He doesn't need to grow in wisdom. He knows everything. He doesn't need to grow in stature or strength or in any kind of power because he's all-powerful. He doesn't need to grow. So, so why did Jesus need to grow if he's fully God? Well, Luke is showing us that he's also fully man. How can this be? How can it be that Jesus was fully God and fully man? And why is this important for us? Philippians 2 is where we need to head to to understand this a little more. So Philippians is written by the Apostle Paul, and he's writing to the church in Philippi and appealing to them to be humble people. He's appealing to them to be humble, just like Jesus. And this is what he says. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God. And he died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we see here, Paul writes these words, he gave up his divine privileges. It might say in your version that he emptied himself. What does it mean that he did this? What does it mean that he gave up his divine privileges or that he emptied himself? Does it mean that he ceased to be God? It does not mean that he ceased to be God. It means that in taking on human form, in taking on human nature, it was like subtraction by addition. Let me help you with a story. Imagine for you, just for a moment a king who is gloriously rich. He's got an amazing palace Outside of his palace are all the most amazing sports cars and he can click his fingers at any moment and a servant will arrive and do whatever he wishes. He can call upon the best chefs in the land. They will cook for him the best food whenever he wants it. He, if he sniffs the most insignificant amount of trouble. He has hundreds of soldiers that can just be called upon at any moment to come and protect him. He has it all. He has everything you could possibly want. And then one day he goes out traveling in the royal city and he sees some beggars on the side of the street and he's moved by their plight and he wonders what on earth is going on here. And he cannot get it out of his head that there's beggars in his royal city. He's got all this lavish stuff and he cannot get it out of his head. And, and just moved by their plight, he decides, I need to work out what it's like to be a beggar. I need to find out what it's like to be a beggar. And so he goes out and he buys some shabby clothes, and he gets himself a sleeping bag, and he goes and sleeps on the streets. And every night, he's huddling with his, uh, with his friends to keep warm. Every day, he's, he's having to hunt down some food somehow. And he's, it's, it's really, really tough. It's miserable. And he gets cold one evening, and he thinks to himself, I could call upon some servants right now, and they could bring me blankets. 
One day he's feeling threatened. He said, I could call upon my, my secret police right now and they would take out these other people in a moment. I, I, I'm feeling hungry right now. I could call upon a Michelin star chef and they could bring a plate to me. And yet, in order to really know what it's like to be a beggar, he doesn't call upon those privileges that are rightfully his as king. He doesn't cease to be the king. He doesn't cease to be the king. And yet he doesn't call upon some things that are rightfully his as king of the whole kingdom. He could have called upon those things, but he did not. He chose not to avail himself of some privileges of his kingship. And that's what we're talking here when it says that Jesus emptied himself. That's what we're talking about here when we see that Jesus gave up some of his divine privileges. He didn't cease to be God, but in taking on humanity, he chose not to avail himself of some things that could have been his. And therefore, he needed to grow. He needed to grow not only in stature from a boy to a man, but he needed to grow in wisdom. He needed to grow in the word of God. He needed to grow in the same ways that you and I grow. By spending time with his father, and the book of Luke shows us again and again, Jesus goes off to be with his father in a secret place. By being filled with the Holy Spirit, we see in Luke, Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit said this. Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit did that. And we see he needed to grow by being in the word of God. And that's exactly what's going on in the temple here. He's learning, he's grasping things, he's grappling with things. He would have come across psalms and prophecies that speak of him. And would have understood, that's going to be me one day. He was the Psalm 1 guy. I don't know if you're familiar with Psalm 1. It's the first of all the Psalms, unsurprisingly. And it talks of this man, who I'm going to read out. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. That's shorthand for the, the word of God, the Bible. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaves do not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. Jesus is this man who plants himself by the stream. He's the one who delights in God's word. He's the one who day after day, week after week, year after year, going to the scriptures and understanding more of who he is called to be. He needed to grow. Why did he need to come as a man it's because we needed to have a savior that could do what we could not do. We needed to have someone, as I said right at the beginning, who could fulfill the law that we failed to fulfill. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, It was necessary for Jesus to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. So Jesus, he's the high priest that we needed, who for once and for all time gave a sacrifice that would never need to be repeated. And he himself was the sacrifice. He's the high priest and he's the sacrifice. And it was necessary for him to be made like us so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest. First Timothy says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. We don't need any other mediator to go between us and God. We don't need any other mediator. So as elders in this church, we're not mediators between you and God. 
We happen to oversee this church and try to shepherd people as best we can. But we're not priests. Because there's one, there's one great high priest who goes on your behalf before God the Father. And his name's Jesus. And he, listen, he never failed any of the tests that were set before him. Listen to this in Hebrews 4. It says, Since we have a great high priest who entered heaven, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours, listen to this. Celebrate this high priest with me. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all of the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly. So in light of the amazing high priest who faced every test that we face, he passed every one. We get tests every week, right? And we fail most weeks. Let's be honest. Jesus had every test set before him, and he, fa- he did not fail one of them. So because of this, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. This is, this is the pattern of our lives, friends. It's coming before the throne of grace with confidence because of the high priest that we have, who is Jesus Christ, who never fails. He passed the test for us. And it's through him that we go to the Father. It's through him that we go to the Father confidently, boldly, and find help in our time of need. It's through him. It's never through our own doing. It's never through our good works. It's never through having a good week. Our good week is rubbish compared to Jesus' good week. And it's because of Jesus' perfect record that we come before the Father with confidence in our hearts. That changes my life. That changes your life when you take it to heart. You can come before the throne of grace with confidence, with boldness, and come and receive help at your time of need. I want to finish with this quote from Michael Reeves, if we could have it up. There is now a man, a real man, with our flesh and blood, our experiences of the world, our humanity in heaven. For all Christ's heavenly majesty, seated on the throne, he is not now aloof from believers and unconcerned. He knows and he loves, and he intercedes for his own. He intercedes for us. He prays for us. He appeals for us before the Father. Sometimes we have prayer requests that get sent around the prayer army in our church, and maybe a hundred people will pray for that person. That's encouraging to have people praying for you. It's far better to even know, Jesus is praying for me. He intercedes for me. He, He does it night and day, praying for us. He's not aloof. He's not uncaring. He knows us. He loves us. And he's appealing to God on our behalf. That's good news. That's why it matters that Jesus was fully human and fully God. He's our high priest, friends. Let's stand together, shall we? Let's worship this God. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and then we're going to have communion, which is our, the name we have for our meal that we take of, of juice and bread to celebrate Jesus's body broken for us, the bread representing his body, his blood poured out for us, the juice representing his blood. And we're going to celebrate Jesus together as we sing. But let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you that right now we can come before your throne of grace with confidence in our hearts. Why don't you just say to God where you are, I come confidently. I come confidently. I come with boldness. Not because of what I've done, Lord, but because of Jesus the mediator, Jesus, the man who saved me, who went to the cross for me. Thank you, Lord, that we can know full confidence. I pray that that would just 
sink in now right across this room. Help it to sink in hearts, Lord, that we can come with confidence before you. I pray that would change our lives. I pray that we would grow in stature and favor and wisdom as we just simply live our lives by this stream of your presence, of your word. Lord, we want to be those that grow because we're just by you, abiding in you. I want to pray for anyone here who does not yet know you. I want to pray that right now, even as we begin to sing, that you would reveal yourself to hearts right across this room by your spirit. Do what we cannot do. Lord, would you lift up eyes to you and your goodness right now. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content, but please do not edit the content in any way.